It's all the sound of sensation across the nation. Listen to Radio Goodies. Boom. Welcome to the Goodies Pirate Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. I'm Rob. I'm Tom. And this is episode 53, where today we're going to talk about Daylight Robbery on the Orient Express. This episode was first broadcast on the 5th of October, 1976, once more a Tuesday at 9pm. This is obviously based very much on the 1974 film Murder on the Orient Express. In fact, they referenced that film several times, and it starred Albert Finney, Michael York... John Gielgud, Sean Connery, Ingrid Bergman, Vanessa Redgrave, and a number of others. Good on a black man. All right, and on a black man. <laughs> what did we make of this episode? This episode, I think they went meta very early with laboring. <laughs> <laughs> it is a dull episode. You know, there's some good points in it, but it's not one that I raced to grab and put on the DVD player. I think it's a very mixed episode. I think there is some very good stuff in it, but there is some low stuff in it, and the low stuff is very low. It's mixed. Richard or Robert? Look, it's another one of those middling episodes where you look back at it with nostalgia, as I do, but looking at it today, the first part doesn't really work on the carriage, and I actually find the latter half of it, once they finally you know, reach Cairns, to be the better half. I know that may be controversial. That, that is controversial. We'll, uh, we'll discuss that. Richard, what do you think? Much as we've said, it had some good material. And look, I was entertained watching it. I don't think it's necessarily that great an episode overall, though. And, but unlike Rob, I probably found the stuff on the train probably to be the stronger material. But... I, I tend to agree with that, but we'll explore it. It opens with a scene I'd completely forgotten, which is the Goody Holes presentation that Bill and Graham are making to the shareholder. Which is Tim. Yes. There's some good imagery in there. We go big game hunting, like there's a cat. Yes. <laughs> shark hunting, like there's a cod that's got a shark fin strapped to it. Yes, climb various mountains and there's a small gravel pile somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and indeed, they can go bird watching, which is Bill dressed as a dodo. Yes, I did notice that this is the first reference of Bill as a dodo, and this, they, this gets spun off into a whole episode next season. Yes. So. But well, they basically promise that they do Goody's Adventure Holidays, where... You can book any holiday you want and they will make it happen for you. Whatever your kink, um, yes. they'll make it happen. <laughs> and they also admit that the only reason they, this is remotely profitable is because it's all a big con. Yes, nobody goes more than six miles south of Cricklewood. <laughs> yes, and it's interesting that they very overtly, right at the start, actually make the goodies con artists. I mean, it's interesting that they start out as con artists and, and in a sense get their comeuppance mm. throughughout the, the, uh, the episode. True. They're kidnapped effectively by the, the, the mimes. They do. One note I did have with this, actually, just changing tack for a second, the idea of them tailoring a holiday or tailoring an adventure to your needs, it did remind me of those sort of live-action games that you can do now, where they'll take you into a location or somewhere for an hour. We, we actually have a colleague who runs, and hello, Ben, if you're listening, runs a, a company that does that. They'll, they, mm. For example, they do like a bank heist one where they take you into... They had an abandoned bank building, and you have an hour, I think, or an hour and a half to work out the puzzles and get through. And it's got, like, um, actors and performers in it, and they have props and electronic stuff. And you actually have to work out how to work your way through the bank. To rob the bank. Yeah, to rob the bank. Or they'll put you in, like, a a room. You've got 30 minutes to solve the puzzles in the room to get out the... There's there's three rooms in succession or whatever. They're quite popular now, I think, at, like, corporate team building. 
Yeah, it's like those escape room yeah. things that are cropping up everywhere as well. But we digress. But we do. So the group that books the goodies straight away is the Detectives Club annual outing. Who want to have a day they'll never forget, obviously surrounding their detective stuff. So we then cut to the Orient Express, which... Is a little bit lost. Yes, I yeah. think so. <laughs> and looks a bit like the Hogwarts Express now. But mm. So we see getting on board the train, Sherlock Holmes, Ironside, Hercule Poirot and Kojak. Yes. Now, do we want to mention all of the detectives, detectives now? now? Um, well, we can do now to get it out of the way. So we see a Miss Marple on the train. We do. There's also uh, Columbo, which is the chap in the trench coat. At a couple of points there, we also see Father Brown, who's the guy dressed as a priest. He's wearing the, the big hat and the black coat. The chap with the monocle is Lord Peter Whimsey, who was another detective from a series of novels. Is that from Dorothy L. Sayers? Yes, it is. Yes. I think. Yeah. And then the two that are mentioned that we don't see are the Ellery Queens, who was a, he was a US detective. He was an American detective, yes. And the Shafts, who of course were quite a popular series of movies at the time. Richard Roundtree. Yes. And again, when we talk about foreshadowing or predicting future events, it's now very common for fans of different TVs, movie, books, whatever, to go along to conventions and events dressed up as your favourite character. I mean, Star Trek fans have been doing it for decades, but it's now very common amongst all genres. So this idea that you would have Sherlock Holmes fans all dressing up as Sherlock Holmes or Kojak fans all dressing up as Kojak to go out on an outing together, I, I think is you know, quite before its time. Mm. Mm. And I originally made the note, oh, none of these people really look all that much like you know, Kelly Savalas, for example, but then I realised that's actually not the point. The point mm. is that they're fans mm. who have decided to dress up as Kelly Savalas. Yeah, Kojak is their favourite detective. Yes. And it's interesting as well, although they've got all these detectives, most of them don't actually do anything really... Detectively, like, okay, you see Kojak, you know, replaces his cigarette with a lollipop because that was a you know, signature thing that changed in the early yes. Kojaks where he went from smoking to sucking lollipops because the network told him to. Poirot gets to do a bit of Belgian accent and Ironside gets to roll around in a wheelchair, but you don't actually see, like, Sherlock Holmes doing much Sherlock Holmesing or No, no but I, I suppose that's probably where you're at with the goodies now. They've really written out the guest cast completely. If you look at this, with, with a couple of exceptions, the speaking parts in most episodes are them now. Mm. And this, other than the Hercule Poirot's and a couple of the other lines from a couple of the others... That... Yeah, they are just supporting their, 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 not a It's not a role. So they, they play no. no part in the plot other than to be... They're set decoration, really. Yes. That's yes. what they are. Mm. Yeah. We right. then get into the fake train trip, which I think is the best part of the episode. Just before we jump into that, there's a bit there where Tim gets on, because Tim is dressed in drag, obviously, and Graham clearly pinches his behind as he gets on. Split second later, Graham is leaning through the window about to give Bill the thumbs up to start the train record, and Tim obviously very clearly pinches him because he does a <gasps> and then turns around smacks Tim and then comes back out the window to tell Bill to set off it's implied rather than seen though yes, yes it is the train then takes off which is Bill playing a record of a train taking off and then <laughs> moving various props past the window to make it seem as though they want to train so the lamppost goes past uh, there's a cow that he pushes past the various signs so they're in Dover because a Dover sign is carried past yes this scene is I think very funny but I want to know how much of it is actually genuinely improv, or Graham particularly improving, as Bill desperately, genuinely is trying to get the various props into the right location. I think some of it probably is improv, and I am going to put a shout out to Graham because he really is what is holding that scene together. Yes. Really, that that entire scene basically revolves around Graham. 
Yeah, so they go through Dover, they go on the Cross Channel Ferry, they go through Cairns, which is Ripson by Tin Cairns, they go through Pisa, and there are a number of times there where, for example, Graham will say, and now we're in Italy, and nothing happens, and he'll then say, and now we're in Italy, and I wonder if that was scripted or that he's literally Bilotti was in the back somewhere struggling to get and, the front. And, and Tim, of course, is frantically trying to get changed in the back as well. Yeah, um, the same bit where Bill carries the leading tower of Pisa past at pace and it falls over. <laughs> Again, I wonder if that was scripted or that he's just Bill genuinely lost his, his balance and it and Graham having to recover from Graham it. Graham had to recover, yeah. I suppose it would be a departure for them to sort of just have that same say, basically. Graham talks extemporaneously while Bill runs up and back with various objects go. But I mean, if they did decide to do that, I suppose it's an interesting experiment. They would have had to have some framework around it though. Yeah. Because, you know, they went to Lapland and they, you know. Yeah, the, the train journey is really isn't very <laughs> linear. They go from <laughs> France to Italy to Yugoslavia to Egypt and then to Lapland. Well, well Lapland is the excuse because he wants them all to go to bed. And yes, he's trying to explain why it's still daylight. The land of the midnight sun. Yes. But, all these out bottles in. And then, heads, tuck them in. Yes, and, and then they're going to be passing through Japan a few minutes later. <laughs> During the course of all this, as you said, Tim basically gets to dress in the national costumes of the various localities, often just in time. You know, for example, we know they're in France because Tim comes out with French loaves and garlic and onions. <laughs> Bonjour, monsieur. There's a great bit where Graham says we're in Yugoslavia, does the whole spiel, and then just as he says, and now we're leaving Yugoslavia, Tim comes out in the national costume just to turn straight around again. <laughs> you also get some good stuff where Tim comes out in the you know, Dance of the Seven Veils, Arabic stuff, and Graham says, and we are now, and Tim does the, oh, we are in pain. We are. <laughs> but yeah, looking at Bill as a reindeer, there's lots of just little funny gags in there. It barely holds together. I do like as well the look when Graham says, and we're now in Yugoslavia, and Bill just comes to the window and goes, what do you want me to do? <laughs> like, you know, what, what is a Yugoslav thing to run past this window? Yes, fame for its, its, its trees. <laughs> and, 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 and. Cows! <laughs> yeah, and then they go through Lapland. Oh, look, it's a reindeer! <laughs> Bill's obviously just put the antlers on and pops up. <laughs> the, the reason why I prefer the second half to the first half is simply because this extended sequence, if for me, it's not funny enough. Okay. Graham is working his guts out. And so is uh, Bill, obviously. But there's just not enough funny material for me. And you're entertained by mimes instead. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes. So, so I, I agree with you that it's not as good as it could be mm. and I again come back to the fact that if you've got people dressed as Kojak and Sherlock Holmes and Poirot sitting there like there's stuff you could do with that Absolutely. and I think mm. I do think this is very funny we're having a lot of laughs at what they've done but I was sitting there going well aren't, aren't these other guys going to do anything other than sit there gormlessly being taken for a ride yeah yeah I mean, the, the scene in the, uh, in, the, in the back section of the carriage later on mm. is quite good. Yes. Mm. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, you've got all these actors dressed up as these iconic figures and you do absolutely nothing, nothing with them. Nothing with them. Yeah. You notice the audience, other than the one what seems to be a little kid who is obviously getting quite a bit out of it, mm. the audience really don't seem to be getting engaged with that scene at all. I wonder if it's a function of they're not actually able to see what Bill's doing in the background because he's quite obscured. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, they're relying on the monitors and what they can possibly see. Maybe, maybe they just think it is actually a really bad special effect. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. 
So after they've passed through the land of the midnight sun and they've sort of succeeded in getting the detectives to go to sleep for a bit, we then cut to the scene in the back where Tim is now starting to get a bit annoyed about all the quick changes that he's being asked to do and decides he's not going to do it anymore. Graham actually gets a bit... That gets a bit creepy, actually. I must admit the bit where Graham... Because Graham is really treating him as a female. You know, you're a doe-eyed vixen. That's the scene where he grabs... But, uh, yes, he basically tweaks Tim's bra. Mm. Then Tim decides he prefers Bill. Who now, that's a very odd portion of the scene. Yes. Well, I mean, first Bill's come in having had the contents of the train's toilet dumped on him. And that is an ongoing thing with railways, is that the older carriages, they basically just vented the toilet straight out onto the tracks. The model. Yeah, well, they still do that here, some of the older trains. And it was a big thing in Britain, apparently, at the time, so I did do a bit of reading about it. Um, they now fit them with tanks, but in the olden days, yeah, they just used to straight out onto the track. Yep. Tim then decides he wants Bill back, which, again, yeah, that's very, very strange, yeah. that bit. It is. However, at this point, they realise that the train noises are continuing, even though the record's been turned off. Mm. which means that the train has actually been stolen. Yes. Now, Bill Oddie does actually get to do quite a bit of very athletic running <laughs> as, he, as he chases that train yes. halfway across England, <laughs> which is a nice bit of speeded-up footage, I guess. They then come back in and they have to announce to the detectives that the train has been stolen. Yes. Where the detectives are in the room have all been moved. The Kojaks are now no longer in the front. The Hercule Poirots have moved to the front of the carriage. And, and I also noted that at this point they go under the channel. Yes. Which is apparently full of tropical fish. Yes. <laughs> Global warming. Yeah. <laughs> is too early. But at this point, Tim runs out to find Bill and in a very quick cut, is knocked on the head. And I actually mean, I had to go back on the recording to watch this because the cut is so quick after he's knocked out, mm. I literally blinked and missed it. Moving on from the idea that the train's been stolen, which, of course, Graham initially thinks is a great idea because it'll give them a mystery. Of course, we then get into the fact that some of the detectives are missing. First ones to go are the Ellery Queens, who we never actually see. They went down to the AUSA dining car, <laughs> which is cut off from the rest of the train. So, of course, they clearly don't die. They're just left behind. Someone cut the couplings, and then there were nine. Yes, <laughs> which, of course, that leads into our ten little <clears throat> joke. Now, I believe the official title of that book is now And Then There Were None. That's correct. That's the official Agatha Christie. Well, it morphed from the more objectionable term. Yes. Think, and then it may have changed to Ten Little Indians in the early 70s, and now it's And Then There Were None. Right, OK. I have to admit, someone who went to school or primary school in the 80s was Ten Little Indians for us. Yes. Yeah, yeah but it, the name did change in the early 70s, because I have a copy of the actual book from the 60s where it uses the politically yes. incorrect terms. So. And then the next ones who go are, again, we don't see the shafts, but they've gone into the toilet and been blown up. And there is a, actually what is quite a racist gag here because Tim then says, talking of <clears throat> where are the shafts? Ah. <laughs> yes. That didn't click with me at the time. But yes. Jeez. And then they, the shafts have gone into the toilet and they've been blown up. And it says, nine little <clears throat> sitting down in state, someone lit the touch paper, and now there's only eight. Although, I guess at that point it is evil Tim, not real Tim, so maybe we can uh, excuse it on the basis of that. Although, it's interesting because at this point, the audience is being tipped off that they are substituting. Yes. Because it's the moment where Graham has the three bits of evidence, the glasses, the Union Jack waistcoat and the beard, which someone then pulls the beard out of his hand. Yes. And you see Bill Oddie come out putting the beard on. Mm. So we're tipped off that these are fake goodies. Yes. Although the episode is a bit inconsistent because evil Tim does panic and try to get off the train 
when surely he would know that it's now up in the air. So they're obviously not really ready to reveal their hand just yet. Yes. Yes. Well, then we lose another group there where the Hercule Poirots, uh, having done their little spiel with every second line is, this is how you say, <laughs> then are poisoned and get to do their wonderful death scene. Yes. Yes. That's, uh, that's very well done, isn't it? Yes. You do actually watch a couple of them when they're lying there dead or coursing quite badly. Yes, particularly. He's lost the almost completely. Yes. And that, that is another appearance, just for a trope quickly, from the Fred Tomlinson singers. Uh, uh, one of them is, I don't know which one it is, but one of them is Fred Tomlinson himself. Okay, now the audience really does love their death scene, though. It is very well called. A few of the other extras are laughing at it as well, if you pan back when you watch through the, a railway carriage. Graham then goes to investigate, and it has the... Uh, the unmistakable smell of bitter almonds, almonds and Bill yes. says, that's cyanide, isn't it? That's right. This arsenic has been poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing we have here is, the episode never actually says why the imposters need to hijack the train to get to France. Yeah. yeah, so this is my big note. Why does this whole plot happen, basically? Yes. Because clearly the imposters want to go to the Lavorian Festival, which we'll get to in a moment. Why they needed to hijack this particular train to then take it through the water and then fly it with their helicopters and then take it on the back of their truck and then yeah. put it back on the rails to get to the... Yes. They could really just use their helicopter. Yes, the back of their very nice model truck. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the only thing I could say, and it's very tenuous, is that their mime performance is Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. That's the only connection I can see the two. But as you say, you just roll up yourself. You don't have to hijack anything. Yes, yes. and particularly if you want to win a laboring festival... Making your entrance by having a train carriage smashed through the wall isn't exactly the best way to no. do that. Well, but maybe we're thinking too hard. It's a mine. I mean, you're not meant to have props there. So mm. the whole thing. And I think my problem with the episode is right there, all of a sudden we've introduced three villains impersonating the goodies for nothing. The playoff is there for them to impersonate them. Then they become mimes and then they have the final chase sequence mm, type yeah. of thing. It and would be nice to see more of the evil goodies. Well, it would be nice to have had some coherence to the plot, I think. Mm. So Fair enough, but we then get some very good stuff where the actual goodies are trying to escape their bonds. Yes. For some reason, there's a goat in the room. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that's in it. not explained, is it? So. I mean, it does allow you to obviously make the... Uh, what, what I think is obviously meant to be a bestiality gag. Yes, where Tim's trying to get out of his ropes and they say, Tim, why not use the goat? Oh, not right now, thanks. <laughs> and, but he does use the goat to gnaw through his bonds and then Graham has a go and halfway through that he turns and says, why didn't you tell me that the goat had turned around? <laughs> <laughs> and the final iteration of that joke is, of course, where a couple of them are free and one of them still needs to get free and Graham goes... Don't be stupid, we don't need the goat anymore, we're free now. And goes down and he starts chewing through their bonds. <laughs> That's actually quite a funny little sort of two-minute sequence. It is. Their plan is to arrive at the Cannes International Festival of Le Boring. Yes, so they can win the Rose Boar. Yes. <laughs> Obviously a reference to the Rose Door that they got the uh, runner-up to twice. Yes, and the Montreux Festival, plus, yes. of course, Cairns is obviously the film festival. So yes. We then go through a list of the international boars that the British team will be competing against. Yeah, this basically, to me, was just a list of everyone the goodies didn't like at that point. Well, uh, I think so, because you've got Charles Aznavour, yeah. Charles Aznavour, Jean-Paul Satire. Yes. 
such a disgrace, they call him, Sasha Distel, who was quite a popular singer. And then they make the point that uh, they would have had Morris Chevalier, but he's dead. <laughs> and thus deemed too interesting. <laughs> uh, and then they get into the British Boars, which, again, I think is very definitely a list of people there, obviously. Yeah, so they have a dig at Michael Parkinson. They talk about the group boring event, which is, you know, the House of Lords, for example. John Peel, uh, Vanessa yes. Redgrave. Yeah. Solo the... boring, downhill boring. Couples boring, which they first start off. Uh, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. Yes. And when their point has been taken out by... Rod Stewart and Brick Eklund. There's a bit of uh, foreigner bashing too. I mean, Tim makes the, the joke about uh, all the wogs and whatever, but they do say about how the East Germans know all about boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, that sketch, I actually thought, was actually a little bit nastier than Liberties normally are, because it really just came across as a list of people I think are boring. Yeah. But then we get to the, I guess, main part of the episode, or the whole point of the evil goodies trope, which is they're going to do a performance to win the Laborian competition, which is a combination of French mime and the Orient Express, the two most boring things you could possibly do. Now, the ironic part of this is that, looking at today, Murder on the Orient Express actually has a 95% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, so <laughs> maybe it's aged better with critics than it did with the goodies at the time. Well, they didn't have the internet back then, the people probably would have been... Well, when was it? 75, so it was the year before. So again, for the second time this season, we've mm. done a direct movie pastiche. So it almost seems to be the theme of uh, this season. Mm, that is true. Now, another issue with the episode is that if the concept you have is that this is a competition of extremely boring things and that mine is the most boring of them all, to then have the last six or seven minutes of the episode being mine... It's perhaps not the best creative choice. <laughs> because, look, I know as a kid I found this deathly boring. As an adult, I just find it boring. <laughs> it's a link there, I just can't quite see it. I, look, I enjoyed it because there's a lot of really you know, interesting slapstick in it. There's a lot of mm. good and well done slapstick. Even now, the, uh, the wheelchair uh, race, I suppose, for want of a better word, is pretty well done, actually. You've got people... Obviously, stuntmen, I think, going down what look like steep hills. I, I just think it's well done. The mime, the miming itself is pretty well done. Uh, I just enjoyed it. I thought it was technically very well done, the yes, final I, I sequence. There is some very good technical stuff in there. Look, the stuff where they're mucking around with the props and that, or the mimes, are, uh, they're trying to fight the mimes, I thought was quite interesting. You know, sort of this exaggerated thing when they pull out the pistol and shoot the musical instruments that the goodies come on with. I thought that was quite good. And they do the, the obligatory, and they even reference in the episode, the obligatory walking against the wind <laughs> and coming up against the pane of glass. Yes. <laughs> so there are all the mime tropes in there. And then when the goodies are struggling to beat the mimes, the detectives, as you said, Robert, do all come out. They've all decided to have Ironside-style wheelchairs yes. for no apparent reason. There are some nice little references in there. Kojak has the the red light that he puts on <laughs> that he used in the series and I believe even now in New York the cops do refer to it as a Kojak light oh really so yes oh, you know good. go put the Kojak light on the car I'm assuming those guys must all have been stuntmen because those a lot of those freewheeling stuff in, in those wheelchairs is quite hair raising I would think yeah well the one that goes into the garbage bins he absolutely throws himself yeah in. well that that is actually I have got a couple of notes here that is of course uh, Doctor Who stunt stalwart Stuart Fell he's the one who goes off the pier into the boat it's him into the dustbins, it's him going over the hedge when Miss Marple goes over the hedge. He is probably best known to genre fans, I think, for his Doctor Who work. He's in about 20, I think, Doctor Who stories. And Blake Seven. Yes. He actually had a really quite interesting career because he did a lot of films, primarily all stunt work that he did. But he also did a lot of work. He had a character called Taro the Jester, 
And he was a fire eater. He was an acrobat, juggler, tightrope walker, stilt walker, magician. He had this whole other career outside of stunt work. So, amusingly, when you see all the detectives come out of the train in the Ironside wheelchairs, the last one to come out is actually the goat. And at the time, you just think it's just a joke and had the goats fall around the wheelchair. Chekhov's goat. <laughs> yes, it turns out to be the entire denouement of the episode because the goodies can't stop the mimes, the detectives can't stop the mimes, but the goat on the wheelchair pushes one of them into the water who smashes headfirst straight through the middle of that boat. Yes. And the mimes all sink. And you know, As does the goat, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> he gave him himself to save the others. <laughs> And it actually is quite a nice little ending. And then the goodies come up and they get a score for their performance as being laboring. Mm. And the episode finishes. Yes. Mm. No, there was a couple of interesting bits in laboring. But just thinking back to that Spanish guy, the bit there where he's playing in the crowd all board. Oh, he nearly got their attention there for a moment, but he's recovered well. <laughs> oh, he's a professional, this fella. <laughs> yeah, and this is what I'm saying all the way through. There are regular good gags. I was laughing all the way through it. But the bits that don't work are the boring bits are very poor and it's another example of an episode that I think doesn't quite hold together like the idea of the detectives thing doesn't quite gel then with the goodies being kidnapped which doesn't quite then gel with them getting to laboring and I wonder if this is another episode where one of them wrote the first half and then just you know maybe got to the part where Tim's knocked out for example and said right the script's yours go where you want well and that what I have in my notes exactly mirrors what you say this is definitely an episode of two halves Mm. What you have said in the past, Richard, about this particular season where the goodies have asked the BBC for less episodes. Yes. If this episode is so problematic, is so up and down, you've got less material to write. I don't understand how they didn't or couldn't take the time to fix some of the points that you you make, Dave. Mm. You're not churning out 13 episodes. I don't know, look, whether this one was written in a hurry or not. Perhaps with the BBC gave them a shorter lead time because there were, and, and we'll get to it when we get to the music episode at the end, but there were some issues with the contracts over this season. Okay. So look, whether that led to a shorter lead time, perhaps. Yeah, possibly. So just to confirm, how much of the mimes are actually played by the goodies themselves? Because definitely at the start they are. Yes, when they take the masks off. Yes. And they do the initial stuff. Are they ever in the same frame together or six? There is more? definitely not six of them all together. Yeah. Even when you see a mime and a goodie together, it's only one mime and one goodie. Yeah. Peter Darren is uh, doubles for Tim, Graham and Bill. Doubles for imposters. So given that nobody else is credited as the mimes, we'll assume that the goodies did it all. We'll move to our regular segments then. Tropes and first. Cricklewood gets a mention. Timmy's yet again in drag. There's a Loch Ness Monster reference. Yes. There are scones throwaway. Yes, they did the scone scone joke again. Yeah. Some of the people they've referenced, Boring from Britva, have appeared previously. I think Ross yes, they have. been referenced. John Peel. Yeah. Was Vanessa Redgrave mentioned? Yes, she was. Yes. So, yes. Another appearance, as we see, from the Fred Tomlinson singers. Mm-hmm. What couldn't they get away with today? Well, I'm going to immediately flag the joke they make about the shafts. Mm. Yes. Graham harassing Tim, I had down there. And also the reference to somebody being a gypsy entertainer would no longer be politically correct. Plus, Tim also gets to do his xenophobic thing about the foreigners competing in lay boring. Yes, that's true. All right, well, we'll move to our favourite gags. Tom. I'm just going to go with, why didn't you tell me that the goat had turned around? (laughs) That whole goat stuff's pretty good, Rob. I'm going to go with, this arsenic has been poisoned. I thought that was quite clever. Yep, that was good. I had a line right at the start that I really liked, which is where Tim says to Graham, to think this up, you must be a raving nutter. And Graham just looks at him and deadpan says, 
that does help. <laughs> and Richard? I'm not going to single out a particular joke. I'm actually just going to go for Graham's performance in the first train scene because I think he really is holding that together. Yeah, there's some good performances in here. There's some really good sequences, but they're mixed in with weak sequences. I think that's what we're saying, is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, next week we're going to be looking at Black and White Beauty. While you're wearing your pantomime horse outfit, maybe you'll take a walk in the Black Forest. You've been listening to the Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. Someone let the touch paper. Now there's only eight. Oh, who's going to be the next to go? Who can tell the assassin, whoever he or she may be, could strike at, how you say? <laughs> 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 <laughs>